Have you decided to purchase Batch IQ or Continuous Pusher Furnace System Equipment? We'll be hearing part 2 of the Heat Treat Radio Lunch and Learn episode, begun with Michael Moiseau of Yuri Steel. Part 1 was episode 102, so listen to the history of these systems, equipment and processing differences, and maintenance concerns in that installment before jumping into this episode about capabilities and throughput. More on our sponsor, the Heat Treat Buyer's Guide, later in today's show. Let's take a listen now. So what we want to do here is just compare the same part, the same heat treating process, processed in a batch furnace and processed in a pusher. Before we get to that, I have carburizing load example. So here we're just going to make an example. I'm going to take this fictitious gear and it's two and three quarters inch in diameter. It's got an inside diameter of an inch and a quarter. It's inch and a half tall and it weighs 1.25 pounds. So for our purposes here, we're going to put these in a cast basket. And the furnace that we're going to put them in, the basket size is 36 inches square. So it's 36 by 36. And the height in this furnace, this pusher furnace is going to be 24 inches. So the Inside dimensions of a 36 inch basket, actually there, it's a 35 inch basket. It sits on a 36 inch tray, is 32 and a half inches. So if I take 10 rows of parts, that's two and three, 27 and a half inches. So that gets me about a half inch between parts. So that's just gonna be our loading scheme. So in one layer, it's going to be 10 pieces of 10 rows of 10 pieces each. So that gives us about a half inch between parts. Uh, doesn't matter why, that's just what we're gonna do so that we have some standard to do that. We're gonna say that this basket is 18 inches tall. So we're gonna get seven layers of parts so that there's approximately one inch between each layer of parts. So what is this, this loading scheme gets us 700 pieces in a basket, it gets us 875 pounds net. So there it is, it's 36 inch basket that's 18 inches tall, and we've got 10 rows of 10 pieces, and we've got seven layers of these things. So we have some room in between them. And the reason for that is circulation of atmosphere and quenchant. So this is what's going to constitute the pusher load. Now, when we go to the batch load, we're going to take four of these because the batch furnace we're, that we're going to compare this to is going to be 36 inches wide and it's going to be 72 inches long. So we have two, two baskets on the bottom, 36, and then two of them is 72 and two on top. So they're 18 inches high. So that's 18 and 18 is 36. So a, we're gonna say a standard 3672, it's got 40 inches of height on it. I can take that 36 inches, put it on a two and a half inch tray and I can get it in and out of the furnace. So what is this four baskets? Uh, 2,800 pieces in a load, 3,500 pounds. So that's the difference. I'm, I'm comparing one basket, 
700 pieces and 875 pounds. And we're going to compare that to what we would do if we ran a batch load, which is significantly more. It's 2,800 pieces and 3,500 pounds. So what do we want to do with this? Let's say that we're going to carburize this and we want 50 thousandths case. And I'll show you very quick soon why we've chose 50 thousandths case. Because at 1,700 degrees, which is what we're going to carburize at, the diffusion rate is 25 thousandths of an inch times the square root of time. And I can do that math in my head, 25 thousandths times two is 50 thousandths. That means we need four hours. So the part would have to be in the furnace for four hours at temperature, carburizing in order to achieve 50 thousandths case. We good? Okay. So let's look at the... The next section, just scroll down, we look at the batch IQ. So as we said, the furnace is 36 by 72 by 36. We have 2,800 pieces in the, in the load. So that's 1,700 degrees. We're going to say that 3,500 pounds, and there's probably uh, two, four, six, eight. There's probably another... Um, eight or 900 pounds in fixturing. So that's about 4,500 pounds. Um, this, it's very conservative. In a, in a 3672, you could, you could probably get away with running 6,000 pounds. So this is just a load that's well within the capability of that. So we are going to, uh, furnace recovery is going to take two hours. Meaning, meaning it's going to take you two hours to get up to temperature until the entirety of the load is at 1700 degrees. That's right, inside, gotcha. outside, top to bottom. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. We're gonna carburize this at four hours. As we described previously, we calculated that. We need four hours to get our 50 thousandths case. And then we're gonna reduce the temperature in the furnace to 1550 degrees so that we can quench it. So we have two hours of furnace recovery, four hours at carburizing, two hours to reduce the temperature and, and attain a uniform 1550 degrees. So that's eight hours, an eight, that's what you would term an eight hour cycle. It's an eight hour furnace cycle. So we know that we have 2,800 pieces in the load. So in eight hours, 2,800 divided by eight, we've got 350 pieces per hour. That's what the hourly productivity would be in this load. Okay. We don't want to talk about could we do? Yes, we there's a lot of things that we could do. This is simply an example. Now, in the pusher, the pusher load, as previously described, it's 36 by 36 and it's 24 inches high. Now we know that we have a basket that's 18 inches high. Again, it's going to sit on a two-inch tray. So we've got 20, 21 inches of the, the top of the basket. It's going to fit in the furnace. There's going to be no issues with that whatsoever. And in this furnace, I don't know if you recall, but when we looked at the first description of that furnace, <clears throat> um, there were two positions in recovery. There was four positions to boost, to diffuse, and there was two positions to reduce the temperature. So the controlling factor is that we want four hours at temperature. 
So in the boost in diffuse, we have four positions. If we want four hours at temperature, that means that we put we have the furnace cycles once per hour. So the load size is, as we described, 700 pieces, 875 pounds. And we get one of those every hour. So in this example, an eight position, 36 square pusher, this process would yield 700 pieces an hour and a batch furnace loaded as we described the same exact loading number of pieces per basket, we would get 350 pieces per hour. So in this, in this scenario, the pusher furnace is going to produce twice the number of parts per hour that the batch would. So if we went back and we looked at that description of what that pusher system looked like, the pusher system, so there's 23 positions in that. So when I, I load a load, it's going to be 23 hours before the first load comes out, okay? So, so what we're talking about is if there were 700 pieces and 800 pounds, 23 of those. So the point would be you either have to have enough of the same product or enough of similar product that can be processed to the same process to justify using something like this. Because if we want to change the cycle in the furnace, so, so can we do that? In the, the answer is absolutely yes. Okay, the preheat, um, the, the, the preheat there, that stays at, at relatively the same temperature. The first zone in the furnace where we're preheating the load, that, can, that temperature can be changed, as can the temperature in the boost diffuse and or cycle time. So in our example, we used an hour. So what if you wanted 40 thousandths case and you're gonna be closer to 45 minutes or 50 minutes of, of time, how would you accomplish that? So that can be done. Um, you know, typically commercial people would, would, would come up with a strategy on how to cycle parts in and hold the furnace or how many empties you would put in the furnace before you would change the furnace cycle. Obviously the last, the last two positions where you're reducing temperature, at that point, you could change the temperature in either the, the first two positions where you're preheating the load or you could change the temperature, the carburizing temperature, because when we're dropping the temperature, it doesn't have a material effect upon that. Typically in a, in a captive operation, you would not do that kind of thing um, for a couple of reasons, and, and not the least of which would be, you know, you think about the, the type of people that you have operating these furnaces, uh, they, they, they come in and out from other departments. And this is the kind of thing that you would want someone experientially understanding the instructions that you've given them. They're, they're not necessarily going to be, the furnace operator is not necessarily going to be the one to do it. You know, this may be a, a pre-established methodology, but what you want them to do is to execute that. But right. if you have somebody that's running a grinder and then they're running a plating line and then they're coming and working in the heat treat, 
that would not be the recipe for trying to make these kinds of changes. Right. As I described to you before, I, I, I worked in, a, in another life at a, at a facility. We had 15 pushers. So they, they were multiple role pushers. We made 10,000 transfer cases a day. And the furnace cycle on every furnace was established on the 1st of January. And on the 31st of December, it was still running the same furnace cycle. Wow, that's crazy. You yeah. never you never changed what you were doing. Parts went into the same parts, went into the same furnaces, and that's how they were able to achieve the uniform results they were looking for. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So the longer the pusher furnace is, the less flexible it is. In this example, you have eight. You know, there are pusher furnaces that have four positions. So if you think about it, a four position furnace, you could empty it out pretty quickly and change the plane, change the cycle. There are a, a lot of six position pusher furnaces in the commercial heat treating industry. That seems to be a good balance. The number of multiple roll pushers in the, in the commercial industry, they're, they're fewer and, and far between. I'm not going to yeah, say so that they're non-existent, but again, to justify, have this an, enough of the same kind of product to justify that is difficult. Yeah. And I think we ought to just make sure people understand. I, I, I know we do here, but the, a multiple a multi, multiple row pusher furnace, Bethany, where you've got that eight station right there, you could put two of those side by side, right? Exactly. So that there's two baskets going through side by side or three baskets side by side or four or however many. Uh, yes. But that's a that that increases the productivity even more of a pusher furnace. But that's a that's a multi row. We'll return in just a moment. But first, let me take one minute to offer you advice from our sponsor, the Heat Treat Buyer's Guide. Use this online or in-print guide to find amazing North American heat treat providers of services, equipment, and related products. The super simple search tool allows you to browse by category or just search by a product or company name. HeatTreatBuyersGuide.com helps to streamline your purchases and expenses so you can maintain excellent results in your heat treat operations. Now back to the episode. I think the bottom line here is for companies that are having high variability, low quantity, low volume, let's say high variability, low, low uh, volume uh, loads, probably, you know, generally speaking, your batch is going to be good because it's very flexible. You can change quickly. However, with a company like the one you were describing, where there's low variability, very high volume, pushers are obviously tend to make a sense, make, make sense. But there's a whole spectrum in between there where you're going to have to you're going to have to figure out which one makes more sense, right? Whether you're going to right. go with with a batch or or continuous. Um, so. Possibly underappreciated is the aspect of distortion. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's just in, in that carburizing example, you'd say uh, we have an alloy steel. We're aiming for fifty thousandths case. Uh, what's the variability variation within a load? Okay. And I'm going to say that, that it's going to be less than five thousandths, less than 10%. So okay. the top to the bottom, the inside to the outside, um, it's going to be less than five thousandths. 
that same process in the pusher furnace, it's going to be less than three thousandths. Okay. So that's, that's one aspect of the metallurgy. Then the other aspect is quenching. So right. you're quenching. So, Go so ahead. Just, just, just real quick. I just want to make sure because you're talking some metallurgy language and let's just make sure five thousandths versus three thousandths, three thousandths is much more uniform, right? It's a, it's a that is tighter. Correct. So, and that's good because that way the entire load is consistent, more consistent, let's say. That is correct. In the, in the continuous unit. Okay, go ahead. And then you're and so that's, the same that's, thing as quenching. Right. So then there's the consistency in quenching. So in the batch furnace, you're quenching 36 inches of parts, right? So if we had, if we had seven layers in the pusher, we have 14 layers of parts in the batch. So what are the dynamics involved in that? So we have experience that ID gear, the ID of a, of a gear, it's a splined gear. Um, in a batch furnace, we were able to maintain less than 50 microns of distortion. There's a lot involved in that. That just, that, that's not for free. There's a, a fair amount involved in that. And it's just not a, it's a, sophisticated cycle, if you will. But that same cycle in a pusher furnace, same case depth, similar quenching strategy, gave you less than half that amount of distortion. So to the, to the, the heat treater where we're talking about the metallurgy of this, you say, well, five thousandths or three thousandths, that's not a big deal. To the end user, that reduction in, in distortion, all of a sudden it starts playing, paying an, a number of benefits. So the amount of hard finishing that has to be done or honing or hard broaching or something of that nature, all of a sudden that, that becomes far more important. Yeah, yeah. Adds a lot of money to the, pro to the to total process uh, right. if you've got to do any of those post heat treat processes. And, and a, to, to a large extent, that is due to the fact that you have a smaller load. So if you have a smaller load, you have less opportunity for variation. It's not that it's all of a sudden magic. Yeah, yeah. And that, for the people that don't understand exactly what that means, you just take a, take a think about a, a single basket that goes into, the, into a quench tank and four, you know, two by two, you know, two on top, two on bottom or whatever, the the parts actually the parts in the middle of that are going to be quenched more slowly right because the the quench isn't hitting it as much i mean you're always trying to agitate it so the cooling rates on a stacked load is going to be substantially different than for a single basket and that's where that's where distortion can happen there are a tremendous number of of components that are running batch furnaces successfully uh transportation industry, medical, aerospace, military, all of those things. I'm, I'm simply pointing out the fact that there's, there's an opportunity to do something. But as we, we, what we have to keep in mind is how many of those somethings are there available, right? 
So the one thing that you would not want to do is try to run four loads in a, in a pusher furnace that could hold 10 because the conditions are not going to be consistent. The front end, the first load, right, is in, nothing in front of it. So it's heating at a different rate than the loads in the center. And the last load is cooling at a different rate than the loads that were in the center. So that, that which I just described to you about the improvement, potential improvement um, uh, in distortion, that would be negated in that, in that circumstance. If you're running a, a, a continuous system at full bore and you're, and you're running a batch system at full bore, there are other, especially when you get to the quench, there are a lot of other variables you need to consider in the, yes. in the batch simply because of the load configuration and the rates of cooling from the outer parts, top, bottom, sides, as opposed to the ones in the middle. Whereas a single basket, you still have to worry about the outer part, parts on the outs, even in a single basket, the parts on the outside are going to cool quicker than the parts on the inside, but it's less so, you know, by a, by a significant degree. So pardon the pun, a significant degree. There you go. Anyhow. So something, something that I have learned, which is totally counterintuitive to everything that I was educated with and everything that I was ever told, we always thought that it was the parts in the top of the load where the oil had gone through and had an opportunity to vaporize and you weren't getting the same uniform quench. Those were the parts that you had the highest distortion. Okay. Counterintuitively, it's the parts in the bottom of the load that have the greatest degree of distortion huh. because it has very little to do with vaporizing the oil and it has everything to do with lamellar flow versus turbulent flow. So where where is the in the quench tank? Where is the is the is this oil being circulated up through the load? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. So the so the supposedly the coolest oil is hitting the bottom first, right? Yes. Okay. So Michael tells what about the future on these things? So where, where yeah, so where do we yeah, where do we think this thing is going? So obviously you're going to continue to see incremental improvement in, in furnace hardware, in burners and in controllers and in insulation and in alloys. These things will be more robust. They're going to last longer. I mean, if we looked at a furnace today and we looked at a furnace that was made 50 years ago and we stood back 100 yards, almost no one could tell what the difference was. And yet <laughs> yeah. they perform demonstrably different. They're far more precise and accurate than ever. The process control systems, you know, we're going to see real-time analysis of process parameters. I, we don't have that now. I think that machine learning is going to come into play to optimize and predict issues and, and prevent catastrophic things. So heating rates that we talked about, why are we not going to see machine learning or AI looking at this and rather than my looking at it and seeing a week later, you know what, it looks like these things are starting to take longer to heat up. Why can't that be noticed by some kind of machine learning or something like that? You know, atmosphere usage. So if you think about it, if you have similar, if you have the, the same, if you're running the same load and you run it a multiple number of times, you should, the heating rate should be the same and the amount of gas that you use to carburize that load should be exactly the same. 
but if you have an, a problem with atmosphere integrity, so you got a door leak, you got a fan leak, or you got a, a water leak on a bearing, those things are going to change. Now, by the time it gets your attention, you could have dealt with that much, 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 much sooner and prevented other things from happening. So did it cause a problem with the part? By the time it causes a problem with the parts, it's really serious. The point is that there's something between when it initiated and when it's really serious that with the right kind of analysis, that that, that could be prevented. I, I think that, that that kind of thing is coming. You know, motor outputs, transfer times that we talked about, all of those things, um, I see those things being incorporated into a very comprehensive system whereby you're going you're gonna to understand what's happening with the process in real time. And you're going to be able to, if, if you make adjustments, you're going to know why. And then you're going to know where do you need to go and look to fix it. And, and, and last but not least, you know, the, the integration of the metallurgical results in the process before you have a significant difference in case depth or core hardness, there, there are reasons that these things happen. And again, you know, this machine learning, expert analysis, AI, whatever it is that we're going to call that, um, that, that we're, going to, we're going to see that, that that's going to do it. And we're not re relying upon somebody to figure out why that's happening. Yeah. So the other thing I see happening in the future is, is it's all about energy and greenhouse gases. So our Department of Energy, right? They have an industrial, today, they have an industrial decarbonization roadmap. Today, and it's, in, and it's being implemented and we don't even know it. So one of the targets in this industrial decarbonization, decarbonization roadmap is reduction in greenhouse gases, 85%, 85 percent, 85 percent by 2035, net zero by 2050. So what does that mean? I've listened to the, the, the I, I, I've listened to the symposiums that that they have put on. There's there are three things that they're looking for. One one is energy efficiency. And I'm going to say that we've been down that raw road and, and we beat that dog already. So it, are there going to be other opportunities? Sure. It's these incremental things and, and burner efficiency, but, but there's, there's, there's no low hanging fruit in energy efficiency. And then the other thing is, is going to be innovative use of hydrogen instead of natural gas, because Hydrogen, the 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 out the CO two footprint of, of hydrogen much lower than natural gas. Unfortunately, that's so. You look at how how's the majority of the hydrogen generated today it's generated from natural gas. You know how do you how do you strip the hydrogen out of there? You heat it up with natural gas, or you heat it up with electricity. Um, so it four times the cost. I believe that's the number. It's uh, hydrogen is four times the cost of natural gas as a heating. 
And then, and then the other thing that they're talking about is, is electrifying. And of course it's electrify, electrify, electrify. And the electricity has to be generated by clean energy. No. So does that mean that we, uh, that we, uh, that we run our furnaces when the wind is blowing or the sun is out or we're using peaker plants that are run off hydrogen and the hydrogen is generated when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing and, and we're, we're stripping out the natural gas. Uh, from what I, I personally have seen with these things, um, these are absolutely noble goals. And you could, you, could not, you could not disagree with them whatsoever. The way that they want to go about accomplishing it and the timeline that they wish to accomplish that in is unrealistic. Well, Michael, don't even get me going on this, okay? I mean, there's a lot of different things that, that are going on here, but it's good to hear you say this stuff. I think it's a, it's, it is a, uh, I agree with you on a lot of this stuff. It is, they are noble goals. There's absolutely nothing wrong with electrifying. Now, I do know some people, and even I would probably fall into the camp, but one of those guys that questions the premise behind the whole decarbonization movement. I mean, is it really, is carb is co2 really not our friend you know there's there's that whole question but even if you grant that i i agree with you that that the time frame in which they're wanting to do some of these things is uh i think fairly unrealistic but your your points are good your points are good on that it's it's always good to know the reality of the world whether you agree with it or not right it's there it's happening so you gotta go in with eyes wide open so the the safety concerns on on these are all very similar um, you know, the MTI has got some pretty good safety courses on these things. And I think there are a lot of people that have taken advantage of that. And the fact that it's been formalized is much better. When I grew up in this, it was, it was something that you learned empirically and making a mistake in learning it, although the learning, uh, situation, um, is, is embedded in you, um, sometimes the cost of that is just too great. So the, the probability of, of being hurt or burnt or causing damage to a facility is just too great. So there are definitely things that, that need to be addressed with that. And there, there are some very basic uh, things that need to be done. Michael, thanks a lot. Appreciate your expertise in all these areas, your uh, wealth of knowledge. My, my pleasure. It's been right. fun. If you like this Batch IQ versus Continuous Pusher Systems conversation, follow and like the Heat Street Radio podcast wherever you're watching or listening so you don't miss alerts when the next episode drops. Get in contact with Michael via email at m-m-o-u-i-l-l-e-s-e-a-u-x at eerie.com. That's m-m-o-u-i-l-l-e-s-e-a-u-x at eerie.com. Or reach out to me and I can put you in touch. My email is bethany at heatreattoday.com. You can also connect with me if you have a new or interesting idea that you want to hear discussed on Heat Treat Radio or would like to sponsor an episode. Again, my email is bethany at heatreattoday.com. Heat Treat Radio would like to thank the Heat Treat Buyer's Guide for sponsoring this episode. Find the equipment and services you need at the Heat Treat Buyer's Guide. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advanced written permission from Heat Treat Today. 
And I'm Bethany Leon. Thank you for listening.